It's great, it's terrific, it's the best show on earth. Circus, all TV series. Hey, hey, it's um, time for episode 21 of the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast, and uh, it's Sean, once again, your host. Thank you for um, downloading, streaming, however you listen to this particular episode, which, quite frankly, I hope turns out much better than the last episode did. I gotta say, I have I have great listen. I have very kind-hearted listeners, so thank you all. I got some nice comments about the last episode Despite that I was listening back to it and thinking, oh my God, how could I have possibly let this atrocity out, man? Um, so first thing I want to do is, you know, apologize to such sloppiness. There's a, a lot of things that went wrong with that episode. Uh, and I just want to address them right now, actually, just so we can move on with our lives. Uh, when I was mentioning the uh, five developers that I identified who showed up at Galloping Ghost Arcade's Developers Day, I was like, okay, I remember George Petro, I just don't know what he did. Just some quick basic research could have told me that George Petro worked for Midway and Williams, and uh, some games that he worked on include Judge Dredd, Revolution X, Total Carnage, Smash TV, Terminator 2 Judgment Day, and NARC among others. And, and he also worked on uh, big buck hunter. So there we go. And, uh, I noticed that all of a sudden with no warning, this was when I was sequencing the episode all of a sudden without any warning that, um, suddenly there's discussion about crossfire. It's like, wait a minute, where did crossfire come from? And I failed to, uh, put in an adequate transition or something that said that time salvo was based on crossfire. But hey, here we go. And Mike Sarna. I keep referring to Mike this, Mike that, Mike that. And I didn't say Mike Sarna until close to the end. And I, I apologize to uh, to Mike uh, Revenge, Revenge, Revenge. I don't know how it's how, how his uh, Atari age name is, is pronounced, but that's another story right there. And speaking of pronunciation, when I was talking about how at first I didn't know how Time Salvo was produced, if I hadn't been so lazy, if I had just connected my freaking Atari Vox before I recorded the episode, I would have heard the name of the game pronounced from the game itself. Ah! Oh, well. <laughs> I did hear from a longtime friend of the podcast. Well, Not that it could be that long. It's not even a year old yet. But I did hear from S. Ramirez 2008. Um, I had mentioned in the previous episode that uh, I wondered what would happen if you tried to play Time Salvo with two joysticks, like Robotron mode, essentially, but with the Atari Vox also connected, which would mean, of course, that in the right controller port, you'd have to have a splitter and put a joystick in one part of the splitter and the Atari Vox in the other. Well, I actually gave it a try, and I even uh, posted a video to YouTube in the Homebrew 7800 channel, and um, it, I got some interesting results. It turns out that you actually can play it to an extent. The thing is, instead of the Atari Vox voice feedback, you get some pretty funky sounds. It actually sounds pretty cool, if you ask me. But there was one point when I was playing in which I was automatically firing, which isn't good because you run out of ammo that way. So you can do it, just eh, I wouldn't recommend it. Either play with two joysticks and disconnect the Atari Vox, or just stick with one joystick and be done with it. 
And one major mistake I made, and I'm, I'm surprised nobody corrected me on this. When I talked about how in the challenge levels of Time Salvo, you don't really get a bonus. Uh, yeah, you do. If you clear everything in a challenge level in Time Salvo, you get an extra life. I failed to mention that. I said that you get an extra life after you complete the challenge level. No, you actually have to get a perfect challenge level. So my apologies to uh, my listeners and, of course, to Mike Sarna, who produced a wonderful game. And today's episode, we're going to talk about another wonderful game and uh, just came out and I'm really, really, really loving it. So, uh, and before we get to that, um, hi, thank you for listening. I already told you, I already said that, didn't I? Oh, well, but um, what's been going on with me lately? Um, not really a lot, actually, not, not really a lot. Uh, just working, just podcasting, just playing games and um, living life, really, which is the, the most important thing. First things first, as a famous podcaster uh, likes to say, um, by the time you hear this, I will have aged and um, I'm recording this at age 42, but when it's released, I will be 43. And if you're listening to this the day that it is released, I took yesterday off and had a nice time to celebrate my birthday a little bit late, actually, by a few days. And um, of course, I mentioned in the last episode, I'm a big Brian Wilson fan. Well, Brian Wilson played a concert in Rosemont, Illinois, just outside of O'Hare last night. He was performing all of Pet Sounds, my favorite album ever recorded, which he's been doing for the past couple of years because Pet Sounds was released in 1966, so it's the Pet Sounds 50th anniversary tour. And uh, he said this is the last time he's ever going to perform Pet Sounds. He said the same thing in 2006 when he did a 40th anniversary mini tour. <laughs> and um, something that he's been doing like the past couple of years, I think... I really do think he's very bored doing pet sounds because he doesn't really put his heart into it anymore where he should be like straight off singing something. I know perfectly well. He's like, he's like, I know perfectly well. And he's like, just kind of like scat talking the lyrics and it just kind of. I don't know. It just kind of doesn't really feel right to me. The rest of the shows though, like the parts that weren't pet sounds, like the quote unquote hits. I, I hate calling them hits because Brian Wilson likes to dig into uh, some of the deeper cuts that us diehard fans love, but the other stuff he sings pretty much straight off. He really does. And given all the crap he put himself through for years, like drugs and smoking till his voice sounded like an ashtray and it's it's remarkable that he sounds as good as he does let's see tonight is my high school class's 25th year reunion and uh looking forward to that i didn't go to our 20th year reunion and uh i really regret that the reason i didn't go is because i had recently lost my job at the time and i'm thinking you know what i better not spend 50 bucks on this reunion i better hold on to that you know and now that i'm unemployed but it turns out i could have afforded it and i felt bad doing it so i i'm making it i'm definitely making it a point to go this time people i talked to who went to our 20th year reunion they all had a great time so i figured you know what i i i should go i should go there um, I, I know at least one of my, one of my very best friends in the world is actually going because she found out I'm going, she's like, okay, if you're going, then I'm going. So I can't wait to see her. And then tomorrow, I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, probably laundry. 
But anyway, that's neither here nor there. I guess I would like to continue on my habit of recommending other podcasts. And I'm going to go kind of unusual here in that I'm going to recommend a podcast I don't really listen to because, well, I don't really follow the subject. And um, the episode that I did listen to, of course, it went way over my head because I, I'm not really into the topic itself. But it's a podcast a friend of mine does. Her name is Carrie. And uh, she and her friend Marie co-host a podcast called Go Your Own YA. It's about young adult literature because they're they're into that. My friend Carrie is like, yeah, I don't really like literature that's written for adults and here's why. I was really wondering what took her so long to decide to do some kind of a podcast because she needs to do that. Uh, the first episode was uh, talking about the Chicks with Sticks series by Elizabeth Leonard and um, as I record this, their second episode is out entitled Never Mind the Bangra, Born Confused by Tan- is it Tanuha, Tanuja Desai Hidie, Hidier. I don't know. Again, I don't really read young adult literature. In fact, I don't really read much fiction, actually. I'm more of a nonfiction guy. I mean, I have a stack of books in my nightstand that I'm going through, and they're all like, let's see, there's Art of Atari, uh, um, there are a couple of Beatles books I got to get through and a book about uh, 1971. You know, that's, that's the kind of stuff I read. I don't really read fiction, but if you are interested in young adult literature and or know somebody who is, check out Go Your Own YA, and that's goyourownya.com is the uh, URL, and I will put the URL in the show notes of this episode of this podcast as well. And there is a little bit of a connection because... Uh, Carrie, one of the co-hosts, she had an Atari 7800 when it launched, and she was particularly a fan of uh, Desert Falcon, if I'm not mistaken, and her husband was a big Atari 8-bit computer fan. He actually told me, he's like, hey, if you ever want to get into that, talk to me. So <laughs> right now, my life is kind of weird because I'm trying to figure out what to do. Um, I, I might have mentioned this before, but uh, the room where I record this podcast and also Pie Factory podcast is essentially the third bedroom of our apartment. And in that third bedroom, we kind of use it as a home office slash, well, obviously recording studio, because that's where I do this podcast. And if I record music, I do it in here too. And um, also that's where I play my video games as well. So I got all that stuff going on in here. And it's just a huge mess in this room. And one of the problems is that uh, I've, I'm, I've already run out of space to properly store my CIB games. I bought uh, three shelves, I think at Home Depot or Lowe's or one of those places, and uh, nailed them to the wall, and they are totally full now. I have a CD tower for overflow that is already full, so I'm trying to figure that out. My wife and I have been kind of investigating the room and trying to figure out how to reorganize it, maybe get some new shelving to replace a computer desk we don't really use that much anymore and uh and i have um a couple of atari 2600s laying around that i want to mod and clean up and stuff and see if i can uh, get they, they work nicely i just want to see if i can get them working even better so uh man i got a lot of projects I'm, i got going on including this podcast and include oh my goodness and i just realized too i'm running out of atari 7800 homebrews to talk about pretty soon <laughs> Um, there's still a ton by Franco dragon on Atari age. He's, he's been cranking them out like crazy. They're basically kind of mini games. 
I just might do an entire episode dedicated to his work uh, with one exception, and I'll mention that uh, at the end of this episode. So that's going to take some time. There's still a few um, Bob DiCrescenza ones I haven't talked about yet, and there are still some that have not yet been released that I haven't decided if I'm going to hold off until they're released or just talk about them now. But yeah, just realize that pretty soon there's going to be some halting to this podcast. And uh, what really frightens me is I'm eventually going to have to talk about Pac-Man collection. And I've actually been recording that in pieces over the past several months because that episode is going to be huge. It is going to, I mean, it is literally going to be huge. It's probably going to go over the upload limit to the uh, podcast handler plugin that I use on my hosting service provider. So I'm going to have to do some kind of core hacking to uh, get that up. I recently referred to that as the upcoming Pac-Man collection gigasode. <laughs> I don't think it's going to be a whole gigabyte, but uh, it's just a word. And of course, I'm accepting feedback about Pac-Man collection and Crazy Auto because there is a homebrew version of Crazy Auto, and that's going to be addressed in the same episode. Oh, by the way, also worth mentioning, in the Atari Age forums, there is a 7800 basic tutorial going on. So if you have the slightest interest in perhaps becoming a homebrew developer, then check it out. Atarius Maximus, who's one of the geniuses behind Dungeon Stalker, is running that tutorial. So check it out. There'll be a link in the show notes, of course. So um, that's been my life, my realizations, my everything for the past couple of weeks. But you know what? I want to go straight into today's topic, which is Super Circus Atari Age. Homebrew by Bob DiCrescenzo, a.k.a. Pac-Man Plus on Atari Age, with graphics by, um, well, I have the box right in front of me where it has the uh, artwork by credit, and so I think it's it might be pronounced Salal Condomero Glue, but I, I am so sorry. I probably completely butchered that. But um, I believe that person is also known as Pac-Man Red on Atari Age. And uh, because Super Circus Atari Age, obviously it was inspired by Circus Atari. Well, Circus Atari itself is the Atari 2600 version of the arcade game Circus. So let's talk about the history of Circus and a little bit about the background behind the history of Circus. Of course, if you were listening to this, your first inclination is probably to believe that uh, Super Circus Atari Age is based on Circus Atari, which I suppose is true. In fact, uh, Sur Super Circus Atari Age has a classic mode that you can select in the options screen, and what that does is it gives you the Circus Atari graphics. But going even further back, Circus Atari itself is based on an arcade game called Circus and it's from Exidy. Now, I'm not going to go into great detail about Exidy since the No Swear Gamer, Phil, did a good job of that with episode 17 of the Atari 7800 Game by Game podcast when he covered Crossbow, which originally was an arcade game, but also by Exidy, and I will put a link to that episode in the show notes. Instead, what I want to do is give you a little bit of background behind the designers who did Circus. The two designers who worked on Circus were Edward Velo and Howell Ivy. I wasn't really able to find much about Edward Velo at all. Uh, the only Edward Velo I could find uh, when I did my research was uh, 
a professional photographer might be the same guy. I don't know, but I was not able to make the connection. (laughs) So you're not going to hear me talk about Edward Velo, unfortunately, other than I can tell you he did Robot Bowl in 1977 and Crash in 1979. And uh, Crash, of course, is better known to Atari home gaming fans as Dodgem. But I can tell you a bit about Howell Ivy. I was able to find some information about him. First of all, his first name is Howell. His last name is Ivy. I've seen some references flip-flop those, and his name is spelled I-V-Y, not I-V-E-Y. But about Howell himself, he spent some time in tech school, and then he was in the Air Force for about seven years, plus or minus, And he was a tech school instructor while he was in the Air Force, in fact. And he found himself stationed at a satellite test facility in Sunnyvale and around or about 1972. While he was working on the base there, there was a computer space game. You've heard me talk about computer space before if you're a regular listener. And that computer space game inspired Howell Ivey to think about designing games himself. So he started to work on a game that was similar to Pong, except that the paddle would move not just left and right, but also up and down. He brought that game over to a company in Sunnyvale called Ramtech, which was a highly successful maker of computer parts and computer monitors. Well, Ramtech liked what they saw, bought the game for $2,000, and offered Howell a job. Um, Interestingly, though, they never actually released the game. What was the game called? I, I really don't know if anybody knows that much detail. Please... Let me know, homebrew78 at fab4it.com. But the first game that Ramtech released that Howell Ivy designed was called Clean Sweep, which is not the same Clean Sweep that was the Vectrex Pac-Man clone. But Ramtech released Clean Sweep in 1974. Howell was still in the Air Force when he started working on that. In fact, he actually began his job at Ramtech when he was still in the Air Force. And uh, after Clean Sweep was released is when he started working for Ramtech full-time. But uh, the thing about Clean Sweep, it was actually a breakout game before Atari did a breakout game in 1976. And for more information about that, I recommend you listen to the Crazy Bricks episode of the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast. But the concept of Clean Sweep was very, very similar to Breakout. Clean Sweep was a paddle and ball game, and your goal was to clear rows, not of bricks, but of dots by hitting them down with a ball. And in fact, the way that the mechanic worked, it was similar to the breakthrough variation of Breakout. And uh, in case you're not familiar with that, truth be told, I did not own Breakout for the 2600 until probably about 10 years ago myself. I always played Super Breakout, which didn't have this variation. But if you're like me and you're not terribly familiar with Breakout, well, the breakthrough variation means that that, uh, the ball does not come down after it hits a brick. It keeps going until it reaches the top of the roof. Same concept with Clean Sweep. The ball will just keep ricocheting and ricocheting, going up, 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 and just let gravity take over from there. It went right through those dots. And uh, you can actually see a lot of gameplay of it on YouTube. I might might put a link to uh, one of them in the show notes. But... um, That was actually the first Breakout-style game that was actually released. So Howell Ivy went on to design all of Ramtech's arcade games from that point on until he left Ramtech to form Exidy with Pete Kaufman and the late Bob Newsom. Now, one of the first truly successful Exidy arcade games was Destruction Derby, which was a two-player driving game with a cabinet with two steering wheels, in fact, and... uh, 
I, I really wasn't able to find out a heck of a lot about that game other than uh, head-on collisions were a big thing in that game, and there are a ton of cars on the screen. <laughs> but Exidy licensed the game out to Chicago Coin, who you probably heard before. I've talked about Chicago Coin before. They evolved into Stern Electronics, if memory serves me right. But Chicago Coin released the game under the title Demolition Derby. There was a problem, though. Chicago Coin wasn't uh, ponying up the license fees that they owed Exidy. So Howell Ivy had to uh, come up with a solution to that problem. He figured, you know what? I better come out with a game to compete against Demolition Derby. So what he did was he tweaked Destruction Derby and made a new game called Death Race, released in 1976. And uh, Death Race was kind of a controversy in the arcades because of its graphical, explicit representation of two-dimensional drawings of cars running over stick figures, who would then very disgustingly and offensively turn into uh, little white cross-shaped symbols. But yeah, Death Death Race, ooh man, that was such a controversy, and it was banned in a few places. Uh, You think think Mortal Kombat is graphic? (laughs) Uh, Imagine little stick figures turning into crosses, ooh. But um, to follow up and to kind of attempt to shut people up, Exidy responded with a press release saying that you're actually running over gremlins, not people. Um, Howell Ivy, though, he kind of admitted that they made up that little spin right on the spot in hopes to stop all the madness. Translation, they lied. (laughs) But anyway, the game Circus came out in 1977, which was a little bit of a change from driving cars over people. And um, Howell Ivy said that the purpose of Circus was basically just to come up with yet another way to use the exact same hardware that was used to uh, to build all the previous games that he did with Ramtech. So yeah, that means that all the games he did up through that point, Clean Sweep, Death Race, Destruction Derby, all and ones that I haven't even mentioned, uh, they all used the exact same hardware to program the games. And mind you, that's exactly what happened. That was in the days when you would actually do all the programming on hardware and not software because microprocessors were still not really used in arcade video games. So what they would have to do is actually take individual chips that would do certain functions and put them in a certain order, solder them, solder them to the board. What I might be saying something totally wrong, but uh, that's what I gathered from all my research and all that. But right around that time, though, microprocessors were becoming commonplace in video game development. So naturally, Exidy decided to follow suit. Now, depending on which source you wish to believe, the first game that Exidy released that used a microprocessor was either Circus or Carpolo, which was another Howell Ivy game. And that microprocessor is a MOS technology M6502, which was a very popular processor at the time. And Howell Ivy said that another reason that he did Circus was he was trying to attract women into the arcade. In fact, he said Exidy was struggling over that for a long time, trying to figure out how to reach that untapped market. From what I can tell, Howell Ivy was at Exidy until at least 1986. Some of the other games he worked on are ones you've probably heard of. Venture, Pepper 2, Mousetrap, Crossbow, and another controversial game, Chiller. And uh, since his early days in video games, Howell Ivy has been president and deputy of CEO of Sega Enterprises, and he was also a technical advisor at Valley Christian High School in San Jose. 
The most recent thing I could find about Howell Ivy was that in 2014, he was named to the board of directors at Nanotech Entertainment, a multimedia entertainment software and gaming company in San Jose. So that's about one of the two designers of Circus. So uh, let's talk about the actual game Circus. Exidy released Circus in January 1977. A lot of this might be, well, duh, for a lot of you, but you know what? Hey, I just have to do this. I have to talk about the gameplay. It's the same concept of Breakout, but instead of a paddle, you control a teeter-totter, and instead of a ball, you're projecting a pair of clowns up into three rows of horizontally moving balloons. You got blue balloons in the top row, green balloons in the middle row, and yellow balloons in the bottom row. The blue and yellow balloons move to the left constantly and wrap around the screen, and the green balloons move to the right constantly and wrap around the screen. It's actually a monochrome game with a color overlay to give the appearance of colors, which was pretty common in 70s arcade video games. The game starts when a clown jumps from a trampoline, a bumper, a whatever you want to call it. Talking about circus, I'm going to call it a trampoline. You get four trampolines. There are two on each side of the play field. You are allowed three what uh, Exidy called jumps per game, meaning jumping off the trampoline onto the teeter-totter. At least that was the factory default. You could set it for five, seven, or even nine jumps. When you land properly on a teeter-totter, you are projecting a clown who's resting at the other end of the teeter-totter up into the balloons, and that clown will pop any balloons in his path. An interesting mechanic about the game is that the horizontal movement of the balloons might actually give some momentum to the clown, so he actually bounces up a little bit, giving him a chance to pop a few more balloons just in one jump. Once an entire row of balloons has been popped, it fully replenishes. Now, not only do you have to catch that clown with a teeter-totter when he comes back down, but you have to make sure that you catch the clown on the proper end of the teeter-totter, the one that's sticking up. If the clown lands on the end that's down, then the clown effectively dies. And yeah, boo-hoo, I cry in my beer over the death of a clown. Yeah, I'm one of those people. Anyway, on each side of the play field, there are two trampolines, like I said before, and it is possible during gameplay that a clown could land on one of the trampolines off to the side and uh, if he doesn't make it all the way down to the teeter-totter, and of course that's fine, he'll just bounce right back up and you just got to be prepared to catch him on the way down. The way the game tallies your score is that you get 10 points for a successful jump, 20, 50, and 100 points for popping a yellow, green, and blue balloon respectively. If you clear a row of balloons, you get a bonus. 200 for the yellow balloons, 500 for the green, 1,000 for the blue. And if you clear the blue balloons, you get an extra jump. And uh, that row clearing bonus, that's also configurable. If you had an arcade manager who was pretty stingy, he or she could turn off that bonus. The control panel, it's very simple, very basic. There's a paddle controller in the middle, single player start button on the left, two player start button on the right. In January 1978, Midway released a clone of Circus and called it Clowns. It looks, plays, and scores identically to Circus, the big difference being that you can still play a two-player game, but each player has a separate paddle controller. There's only one controller on the Exidy game, but two on the Midway game. Midway itself licensed Clowns to a company called Sub Electro in the UK, and Sub Electro released it under the title Springboard. 
And uh, if Subelectro has a claim to fame, it's that supposedly Subelectro invented the cocktail table style of arcade games. Whether Springboard was released as a cabinet style arcade game, I, I really don't know. I really don't know. If anybody knows, again, homebrew78 at fab4it.com. Of course, there were versions made for the Atari 2600, the Tandy Color Computer, which it was called Clowns and Balloons, Commodore VIC-20, in which it was called Clowns, Commodore 64, and the VTEC Laser. You all have one of those sitting in your closet, right? Remember the VTEC Laser? Yeah. It was primarily sold in, uh, from what I can tell, just the United Kingdom and Australia. So that's Circus in a nutshell. I've played it a few times. Galloping Ghost Arcade, not far from where I live, has that game. And uh, I freaking hate it. I absolutely hate, 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 hate Circus. It, it just seems that it's like, impo- the gameplay just is like way more difficult than it needs to be. And the paddle controller is kind of bad in that game. It's uh, it's not smooth movement at all. Like, if you're used to the Atari 2600 paddle controller, then playing Circus on the arcade machine is going to be a huge shock to you because it's not a smooth moving paddle. It's more like it's not smooth movement. It's kind of a series of clicks. And um, it's not the most easiest thing on the wrist. I mean, Arkanoid is kind of like that, but much, much smoother. So imagine an Arkanoid style paddle controller, but with more resistance, I guess. I never actually owned Circus Atari on the 2600 until again, the last 10 years, maybe. And, uh, I haven't played it that much, but I did absolutely love it on the 2600, but I hate it in the arcade. But This podcast is neither about the arcade version nor about the 2600 version, so I'm going to shut up and move on to Super Circus Atari Age. And in fact, like I kind of like to do, I'm going to talk about the history of how it came about, how it was developed, so you can get get a feel for the work that goes into these wonderful homebrews. Teeter-totter love goes up. Teeter-totter love goes down. When Bob first started working on Super Circus Atari Age, he intended it specifically to be for the still-unreleased XM add-on. But in the end, it turned out that he didn't need the extra memory that the XM has, so he was able to develop the game for unexpanded 7800s, although he still had the XM unit in mind throughout the development, as you'll hear. But it was on August 10th, 2010, when Bob first announced the Super Circus Atari Age project, and he mentioned that there was an earlier version of it shown at the Classic Gaming Expo. Obviously, it was supposed to be a next step from Circus Atari, and indeed it was. At the time, Bob was planning a progressive mode, kind of like in Super Breakout, uh, Variation 7 on the Atari 2600, dual-player simultaneous mode, Arkanoid-style power-ups, and a bonus item that would be an Atari Age logo that would come out, but rarely, and possibly a bonus round of some sort, his exact words. There would be a drop power-up, meaning the balloons would drop down a level, which Bob said can get very difficult very quickly. There would be a slow power-up, which would slow the speed of the balloons. There would be a fast power-up, which does the exact opposite. 
there was a reverse power-up, which changes the directions that the balloons go across the screen. There's a T power-up, which clears the top row of balloons, an M, which clears the middle, and a B that clears the bottom. There was a P power-up, which, just as with the P power-up in Arkanoid, gives you an extra turn. The scoring worked like this. A successful bounce would get you a point, a balloon in the bottom row, 10 points, a balloon in the middle row, 20, and in the top row, 30, and you'd get 100 points for catching a power-up. The screen cap that Bob posted showed very detailed balloons and uh, stick figure clowns, and Bob said that those stick figure clowns were actually going to change. The bad news, however, is that the game would only work with a joystick or an Atari 2600CX20 driving controller. Bob said that despite wanting really, really badly to implement paddle control, it would have been impossible. And um, just to explain why it was impossible, he linked to a programming discussion on Atari Age about using paddles versus driving controllers on an Atari 7800 in 7800 mode. And Atari 7800 never had a problem using the paddles on a 2600 game, however, but 7800 game, different story. There were two other Atari Age users, Debro and Groovy B. Those two users were looking into the possibility of adding paddle support to Super Circus Atari Age. Now, the initial post included a playable ROM that required a joystick. At this point, there weren't any trampolines, platforms, bumpers, whatever you want to call them. So Atari Age user NE146 suggested adding them. There weren't any sounds in the game yet either. Now, another Atari Age user, Big O, proposed having a two-player mode with a second player shooting at the clowns, given how a lot of people hate clowns. Oh, man, I would love that feature myself. Anyway, uh, later on that same day, Bob posted what his updated plans were. First off, he wanted to get rid of that drop power-up because he figured it made the game much too hard, and he decided not to implement progressive mode after all, which I, I'd have to say I think was a good choice. In a game based on Circus, I just don't know how plausible that would have been, given how low the bricks go on progressive mode in Super Breakout. Anyway, Bob was also planning to add a power-up that would increase the player's speed with realistic gravity, and there would be another set of platforms or trampolines to reflect the arcade version. And at this point, driving controller support was there, but it could have been better, so the plan was to make the precision of the driving controller's reaction time a little bit better. The sounds would be done via a pokey chip, and of course, I have to believe at this point that the assumption was that the pokey chip would be through the XM unit, which would contain a pokey chip. August 12th, Bob posted some clarifications and a few more details about his plan. Regardless of what controllers the game would support, with or without paddles, the controller you use would be selectable in the configuration menu. Other options would include the option to regenerate a row of balloons as soon as the row was cleared, or the balloons would restore once you clear all of the balloons, not just one row. There'd be a choice of difficulty level, that is, how fast the clown would move at its maximum speed, and a choice in the number of players. There'd be one or two player modes, and the two player modes would include alternating turns or simultaneous. August 14th, a pretty scary update from Bob happened. Apparently his hard drive crashed, a Western Digital hard drive, and it hadn't been backed up in five months. Oh boy, which meant that all the work he did was gone. It was destroyed by a hard drive crash. 
But the good news is he was actually able to remove the hard drive from his computer, mounted on his wife's computer, and repair a bad boot sector, and he was able to recover everything. But there was a major announcement. Thanks to Debro, Circus Atari Age would now work with paddle controllers. And the plan at this point was to keep support for all three types of controllers, joystick, driving controller, and paddle. The next day, Bob posted a paddle version of the ROM, and this new ROM supported all three controller types. It added a G power-up that, uh, quote-unquote, kind of increases the gravity, and the drop power-up was gone. Still in the plans was to add a bonus round, which would only be an option if you choose the game variation in which you have to clear all three rows before the balloons regenerate. So several days go by in which people are trying out the paddle version in emulators, but they found out they couldn't use it because Atari 7800 officially did not support paddles, ergo the emulators didn't support paddles because the people who made the emulators didn't know how to handle them. So that meant that only people who had some kind of rewritable cartridge, like uh, the long, long, long gone Cuddle Cart 2, or a test version of the Concerto Cart, only those people were able to really test the paddle version. August 31st, Bob posted some screen captures of his work in progress. There was now an Atari Age-themed intro screen. There was now an options screen, and there were new clown graphics courtesy of Atari Age user Aspire 8. All controller types were selectable options, and both the two-player modes were added. On the to-do list at this point, bonus points when clearing a row, Bonus points for collecting the power-ups that remove those respective rows. Bonus round or rounds. Sounds, of course. And adding some collision detection so that if the clowns happened to run into each other, they'd bounce off each other. And there'd be more platforms and trampolines and bumpers, whatever you want to call them. September 2nd, Bob posted another update. After Big O commented that he doesn't like the useless, as he called it, splash screen, Bob said he'd add a feature and that if you press any key, whether it be on the console or the controller, you would skip that Atari Age intro screen. Up to this point, if you wanted to use a paddle controller, you actually had to first plug in a joystick controller, choose paddle in the controller options, and then unplug the joystick and plug the paddle in. So to get around that issue, Bob said he was planning two techniques. One technique would be to use the high score cartridge to record what the last controller used was and use that information accordingly. And of course, not many people have high score cartridges, but that was planned to be part of the XM functionality. The other option was to use the select button on the console. The bumpers that I mentioned before and the clown collisions, they were now in the game. A couple of Atari Age users suggested using a background graphic so it would have a little bit more pizzazz, like add a three-ring circus or an audience or something. But unfortunately, because of the way the graphics had already been utilized, that was not going to be possible. He said the only thing he could do was change the entire background color, but that was it. But he was open to the possibility of adding Pac-Man-style intermissions, as suggested by Atari Age user Lendorian. On September 9th, Bob posted another update. You guessed it. You could press a button or move the joystick to skip the intro screen. The select button would now change options, so you don't have to connect a joystick if you're using a paddle controller. The clowns were slowed down a little bit to make the gameplay a little bit easier. A lot of people had issues uh, with uh, the difficulty level. 
Bob also fixed an issue that affected the row clearing bonuses. Those extra side bumpers, trampolines, platforms, whatever you want to call them, they were there now. And um, a feature that was currently in the game at the time, the number of successful bounces determined when the clown increases the speed. The new feature now was that that was still there, except as you went on through the game, the number of bounces that would trigger an increase of speed would actually decrease as the game goes on. And Bob put a little evil grin next to that little detail. (laughs) Still on the to-do list at this point, bonus rounds, sound, and now a thousand point bonus item, which would be the Atari Age logo, and it would fly across the screen. Of course, there was still the possibility of cutscenes. And at the suggestion of Atari Age user Shannon, the possibility of a safety net power-up to replace the gravity power-up. And uh, apparently that was inspired by Arkanoid Plus on the Nintendo Wii. And the next day, Bob posted the corresponding ROM file for people to try out. On September 20th, Bob posted a kind of uh, ominous message. He said, this game has been put on hold until further notice. And of course, people were wondering what that meant. And, uh, from what I could tell, the first thing that people wondered was, is Bob okay? So, of course, that that's the important thing. And Bob later explained, well, it's because I'm going to be moving out of state soon, and I have some issues at work I have to go through. But once I'm in my new place in Florida, I hopefully will have more time to work on this. So it's like, okay, he's just needs to take time for life. So that's absolutely expected. On September 28th, though, there was a new update. The bonus round was added. And the idea of the bonus round is that there's an Atari Age logo on the screen, and you need to hit that thing 16 times to finish the bonus round. And every time you hit it, you get 100 points. And if you finish, you get 5,000 points. Lose a clown on the bonus round, and the bonus round ends. The bonus round would only be available if you choose all for the refill option, meaning you have to clear all the balloons before the balloons regenerate. The clown's death graphics, as Bob called it, were updated courtesy of Aspire 8. High score cartridge support was added, and as a result, the paddles now would have to be used in the right controller port because paddles in the left port would actually conflict with the high score cartridge. You'd still need to use a joystick or driving controller in the left port to enter your initials in the high score table, though. And uh, here's some techie stuff that I didn't quite understand. It might be because I don't have a high score cartridge and I don't know how that works, but... uh, Bob explained, if you change the fourth byte of the high score cartridge, the controller type byte, to anything greater than $01 or one hexadecimal, I guess, the high score cartridge crashes. Bob decided to not add the intermissions because he wanted Super Circus Atari Age to be a Twitch game like the original, but he felt that the cutscenes would break the flow. Some of you listening might kind of roll your eyes as to why you have to explain this. Oh, you're just doing it because you like to hear yourself talk. Well, sure, of course I do. But anyway, I do want to explain what a Twitch game is because honestly, I only found out in the last year or two exactly what a Twitch game is. I didn't quite understand that. But if somebody's referring to a Twitch game, it means that uh, a lot of the gameplay depends on your quick reactions and your reflexes. And uh, somebody once pointed out that Tapper is a classic Twitch game because you basically have to react like immediately with everything going on with all the action happening. Basically, any paddle and ball type game is really a Twitch game because especially when things speed up, you have to be like on your toes, react right away. 
But um, basically, if it requires a really fast reaction time, I guess it is a Twitch game. So anyway, if that's a terrible explanation, I apologize, but I'm sure somebody would um, correct me on that. But moving into the month of October, the 1st of October, there was a new ROM posted. That new ROM included the very rare bonus item, the safety net power-up, the letter N. And as Bob described it, a nicer entry and exit of the bonus round item, which at this point is going to be referred to as the boss. Uh, it's kind of weird having a, having your boss be an Atari Age logo. Oh, well, there were some new point scoring techniques added. If you clear an entire row, you get either 300, 200, or 100 points, depending on whether it's the top, center, or bottom row, respectively. Every time you hit the bonus round boss, you get 50 points and 500 points for hitting the boss 16 times without dying. The bonus item that appears occasionally is worth 1,000 points, and a successful bounce would be worth a point, which I think I mentioned before. There was another new work in progress released October 14th, and the balloons had been redesigned, and the design did not include the strings like the original one did. And also, Bob added a bit of real estate to the playfield, allowing for the balloons to be higher up on the screen. The text that made up your score had to be shrunk down a little bit to accommodate that, and there were more sounds added. October 20th, Bob was happy because the game was nearing completion. There were more sounds, and Bob was particularly proud of the teeter-totter sound. The teeter-totter graphics had been changed a little bit to save some space, and there were now difficulty settings. There was easy, which would give you a slow clown, medium, and a hard setting, which Bob described as insane. And Bob had reduced the number of times you need to hit the boss from 16 to 10 because he found that 16 was just too hard. The rarely seen bonus item used to float up on top of the screen. Well, now it would float lower down in the play field. And Bob added, you might recognize it when you see it. And he puts a smiley face next to that. On the to-do list was adding background music. The plan was to add Entry of the Gladiators by Julius Fuchik, which I believe is how that name is pronounced. Yeah, I'll bet you didn't know that little tune actually had a name to it. Of course, I would think the obvious choice for background music would be The Loveliest Night of the Year. Hmm. But then again, maybe that'd be too obvious. I don't know. Unfortunately, though, Bob was not really looking forward to that because he said it would be very labor-intensive. Oh, and the, this is the first mention also of a possible Easter egg. October 21st, Bob changed the sound of the clown hitting the bumper, and he reduced the volume of the balloon popping sound to make it less harsh. And Bob added, there are no Easter eggs in this game. When you play this version, you will see why with a smiley face. And uh, I don't really know what that meant, but uh, oh well. And at this point, Bob's talking about not actually putting background music in because entry of the gladiators is too long and would probably take more than a month to get it into the game. October 24th, by request, Bob changed the way that the remaining lives is displayed. So it shows you reserve lives so that when you're on your last clown, nothing shows up in the reserve life indicator, which is a uh, pretty standard. Most games are like that. Very few games still show you a reserve life if you're on your last one. Bob also changed the bonus item graphics. One of the power-ups was changed. This time, the reverse power-up was replaced with a U power-up. What would the U power-up do? It would change the play mode to breakthrough. Breakthrough mode would stay until either you catch another power-up, lose a life, or clear a level, whichever comes first. 
Despite Bob's previous update, he was still planning to add background music of some kind. Oh, and uh, he also posted a preliminary cartridge label design courtesy of Mark Oberhäuser. On October 28th, at Atari Age user Durkata's suggestion as a possible solution to the music conundrum, Bob simply made up a simple tune in waltz time and had it loop for the background music. There, all done. And a release candidate was posted, and the next day a second release candidate was posted in which the music was slowed down. And also with the first release candidate, the music would restart at certain points in the game, but Bob took that out because he didn't really want to double the length of the music. And he also lowered the volume of the title screen. And going back to that music stopping, at this point it would only stop when you lose a clown, providing that you're not playing two-player simultaneous mode, otherwise the music never stops. Release Candidate 3 was posted on October 30th, in which the driving controller was tweaked for better playability at the sacrifice of uh, smoothness in the teeter-totter animation. There was now difficulty switch functionality. The left switch controlled whether two players in an alternating player version share the same set of balloons, or if each of the players would have his own set of balloons, and the right difficulty switch would enable moving barriers under the balloons if you flip it to the right. In a two-player alternating turn game, the player who is not actually in play would control the barriers. And the next day, Trick or Treat Bob gives us Release Candidate 4, which hopefully fixed a bug that would cause the high-score cartridge screen to crash. There was a fifth Release Candidate posted on November 2nd, and a sixth one on November 7th, and in that sixth one, you would get a bonus life when you cleared a row, just like with the arcade version, and this time in both regular mode and classic mode. Oh yeah, classic mode, meaning it looks like Circus Atari. Release Candidate 7 happened the next day, and there were more tweaks to the high score cartridge functionality. And the easy level was made a little bit easier. Atari Age user Alan found that the high score page doesn't appear at the end of the game, and that there was a display issue in the Reserve Lives Indicator, and Bob fixed both of those issues with Release Candidate 8 posted on that same day. November 11th, Bob posted a very detailed guide on how to play the game, the scoring, the power-ups, all that good stuff. Basically what you would typically find in a manual, but without all the creative pizzazz. Now jumping ahead to 2011, Valentine's Day, Bob started to offer up cartridges of Super Circus Atari Age. However, only two cartridges would actually have pokey sound, and the rest would specifically be for the XM unit, which itself has both a pokey and a high-score cartridge functionality. The rule was the first two people to private message him would get the pokey versions, and everybody else would get the XM, the caveat being that, yeah, you could play the XM version on your 7800 without the XM because, well, it hadn't been released yet, still not released as of this day, but you wouldn't have any sound or high-score saving. Bob wasn't planning to offer any more standalone pokey versions because he didn't want to sacrifice any more ball blazer cartridges because he feared they were getting too scarce. February 20th, Bob announced that he wouldn't actually be making any standalone cartridge, stating that he didn't want any problems to arise with producing two different versions. So all carts he made would specifically be the XM version. He said, and I quote, I want to keep this as an XM release only so there are no issues between people that don't have an XM and people that do. Over a month later, on March 23rd, Bob posted an update with a 62-person waiting list. 
Bob said that he had donor carts that he could convert to Super Circus Atari Age, but he was finding it difficult to desolder them, so it would take a while. Uh, or as they say everywhere except the United States, desolder. So there we go. Now I covered everybody. And um, also, he was waiting for an XM unit on which he could test the cartridges because he did not want to send any cartridges out without fully testing them first. Another slight leap in time, June 27th, Bob decided to make standalone cartridges after all. He only had six Pokeboards he could spare, though. His suggested price, $30 for pre-made Poke cartridges, $20 if you supplied a Ball Blazer cartridge, which would then be converted to Super Circus Atari Age. On June 30th, Mark Oberhäuser announced that his Super Circus Atari Age box design, complete with cartridge holder, would be available for purchase at 14 euros plus 220 shipping to Germany and 345 shipping airmail uninsured everywhere else. December 1st, Bob posted a PDF version of the manual with the caveat that it would likely change at some point. May 15th, 2012, Bob announced that those on the waiting lists could now begin sending donor ball blazer cartridges and paying him depending on which version of the cartridge they requested, plus $2 shipping to the United States, $4 shipping everywhere else. There were even people asking to buy both the standalone and XM versions of the cartridge, which Bob was kind of floored by, but he was considering letting Atari Age be the handler of selling the XM version. On June 23rd of that year, the run sold out. January 13th, 2014, Bob posted another revision of the ROM, yet another one at this point. Apparently, there were some issues with static when you waited for a player to start, but with thanks to Atari Age users Yerky and Atari Brian, that problem no longer existed. So, over the next few months, there was discussion as to whether Atari Age would be selling the game, Albert said yes, but he was running low on Atari 7800 cartridge shells. But on May 13th, Albert posted a picture of the PCBs that would be hosting Super Circus Atari Age once it was in the store. Now, I don't know for sure, but at first glance, the picture of the PCBs that Super Circus Atari Age would be made on looked like the Versa board designed by CPU is, but I'm not 100% sure about that. Flash forward even further, October 16th, 2016, at long last, an announcement is made that Super Circus Atari Age, along with Bentley Bear's Crystal Quest, Froggy, and Time Salva would be available for purchase soon from the Atari Age store. And um, things haven't changed since the previous episode, by the way. Froggy has still not been released, so you haven't missed anything yet. Late March 2017, those previously mentioned games, minus Froggy of course, were available for pre-order to Atari Age subscribers, and they were shipped out in June. And on June 11, 2017, Bob posted an updated ROM that would solve problems found when using the paddle portion of the Coleco Gemini controller. Apparently, if you used a Coleco Gemini controller, the one that had both a joystick and the paddle, if you rotated the paddle all the way to the right, the teeter-totter wouldn't go all the right. It would stop at a certain point. So Bob had to fix that, and he also fixed the game so that it would work with the at-games paddle controllers. On July 16th, 2017, Super Circus Atari Age was finally available in the Atari Age store for $55 complete in box. You got the box, you got the manual, you got the cartridge. However, to order that cartridge at this point, you need to supply a pokey chip, either via a ball blazer cartridge or some other way of sending a pokey to Albert. 
So, wow, a seven-year span in the development history of Super Circus Atari Age. That was a lot to talk about. So, hey, let's move on to the actual gameplay, shall we? Okay, if you've played Circus Atari, then you know how this game plays. And if you know how the arcade game Circus plays, well, Super Circus Atari Age plays even better. And in case you haven't been paying attention, you control a seesaw, a teeter-totter, whatever term you wish to use. You move it back and forth across the screen. You catch clowns that are falling off of bumpers or platforms or whatever. And you launch the clowns into rows of balloons and have the clowns pop those balloons. In the arcade game Circus, the teeter-totter would kind of rotate automatically depending on what side of the screen you're on. The end of the teeter-totter that was up would always be on the outer side of the screen, but in the home versions, including Super Circus Atari Age, the teeter-totter does not flip around automatically. You have to do that yourself by pressing the fire button. Just like with Circus Atari and Circus, there are three rows of balloons that go across the screen. The top row of balloons is red, the middle row is yellow, and the bottom row is blue, and each row goes at a different speed. I thought that was a nice touch. The top row, the red ones, they go the fastest, and the blue ones go the slowest. If you are playing in classic mode, however, which uh, you're basically playing a simulated Circus Atari game, then the balloons all go at the same speed, at least from what I can tell. There is a refill option in the startup screen, and uh, if you turn that to row, then that means, of course, that the balloons will regenerate when you clear an entire row. And if you clear the top row, you get an extra clown. If you switch refill mode to all, that means you have to clear all three rows of balloons. And you get a bonus clown when you clear all of the rows in that mode. Also, in the refill all mode, you get the bonus round I talked about. The bonus round, there's what is called a boss balloon that looks like the Atari Age logo. And you have to hit that ten times. And if you do then you get a 500-point bonus. Also, if you select Easy Difficulty, there's Easy, Normal, and Hard. If you select Easy Difficulty, you only have to hit that thing eight times, which I found out while playing. It's, I don't think it's actually documented in the manual here. In fact, yeah, it's, it's not documented in the manual, so there you go. And something that I found interesting, if you lose a clown during the bonus round, you lose a clown. It counts. So be very careful during that bonus round, don't just blow it off. And if you lose a clown during the bonus round, the bonus round ends. The bonus round does not happen in classic mode. Also in classic mode, you don't get power-ups. And in case you had trouble catching up with uh, what power-ups went and what power-ups stayed, here is a list of the different power-ups. There are three different power-ups, which if you catch they will clear a specific row of balloons. If you catch a power-up that says B, it clears the bottom row, C clears the center row, T clears the top row. And of course, if you catch the T power-up and you're playing in row refill mode, then that means you also get a bonus clown because, hey, you cleared the top row. The S power-up will slow down the balloons. The F power-up speeds up the balloons. If you catch the N power-up, there's a safety net that will allow you to miss a clown once. The U power-up basically puts you in breakthrough mode. 
in which, and I quote from the manual, the clown breaks through the balloons instead of rebounding off of them. And of course, the P power-up awards you an extra life. To score points, a successful bounce, meaning you land properly on the seesaw, the teeter-totter, whatever you wish to call it, you get a point. Popping a balloon in the bottom row gives you 10 points, center row 20, top row 30. If you clear a row of balloons, you get an extra bonus. The blue balloons, that's the bottom row, you get 100 points. The yellow balloons, the middle row, 200. And the red balloons, the top row, 300. If you catch a power-up balloon, you get 100 points. You get 50 points every time you hit the boss balloon in the bonus round and 500 points, as I said before, for deflating the boss balloon. And uh, once in a while, there is a bonus item that flies across the screen. Um, I'm going to treat that like an Easter egg and not tell you what it is. Um, there's no way really to activate it. It just kind of happens. It kind of floats across the bottom of the screen. I've seen two different ones so far, and uh, I'm going to let you seek that adventure out on your own. <laughs> but if you hit it, you get a thousand points. And uh, going back to the options screen, you can choose either joystick, paddle controller, or driving controller. I've not tried the driving controller yet. I really should. I do believe that the joystick and driving controller, if you choose either of those options, it has to be plugged into the left controller port, and the paddle has to be controlled in the right controller port. The difficulty switches have their own functionality, too. The left difficulty switch, if you flip it over to the left, in a two-player alternating game, each player gets his or her own set of balloons. If you flip it over to the right, then both players in a two-player alternating game use the same set of balloons. For example, let's say that uh, if you just start playing a game, brand new, fresh, you knock out nine balloons, you lose a clown, then the next player takes over, but with a completely replenished set of balloons. And then when that player loses a life and you take over, you have that same set of balloons that you had before, minus the nine that you already popped. But if the difficulty switch were on the right, then when the other player takes over after you lose your first life after knocking out nine balloons, then that same player will have that same set of balloons minus the nine you already knocked out. The right difficulty switch is truly a difficulty switch in that if you have it flipped over to the left, it's a normal game. If you flip it over to the right, there is a set of three moving barriers that are under the balloons. If you're playing a two-player alternating game, then the player who is not currently shooting a clown toward the balloons actually controls the barriers. And uh, remember how I said that uh, that little intro screen with the Atari Age logo and, and everything, you can skip it by pressing just about anything? Well, from what I can tell, if you want to skip that screen, you actually have to hit the button on the controller, or else you have to just wait for three seconds while that screen happens to generate. So that's really the gameplay right there. And please do allow me to editorialize because I just have a couple of things to say. First of all, I'm seriously, when I was playing this, I was just marveling at the clown animations. Again, I'm not a clown person at all. Clowns scare the crap out of me. I hate them except, well, except for Bozo. I was okay with the Bozo show. I, Bozo's cool, especially the original Bob Bell Bozo in Chicago, after whom uh, Krusty the Clown's voice was based, by the way. But the animation and graphics on the clowns in this game, they're so fantastic. I think I mentioned this before, but not only are the clowns just going up and down, but you can also see like little nuances. Their arms flail back and forth. You can see them kind of position their arms for aerodynamics and things. 
You can see their red noses and a little shine on the red nose. I think you can even see facial expressions too. I mean, it is so, so cool to watch. I do wish you could turn off the music. It does kind of grate on me after a while, but what I do absolutely love is that it actually does significantly quiet down when you start a game. So yeah, it's always on. You, you turn on the cartridge, you're going to hear the music constantly, but once you start a game, the volume drops very significantly, so you hear more sound effects than you do music. There is a high score save capability if you have a high score cartridge or if you're one of the lucky few that has a test unit of the XM expansion module. Um, not terribly long ago, Kurt Vendel posted an Atari age that he's back to work on that thing, so hopefully it won't be too long before we see that thing actually happen. And of course, when it does actually happen, you better believe it's going to get some coverage on this podcast. But hey, Super Circus Atari Age, personally, I love it. Highly recommend it. And um, if you see a ball blazer cartridge out in the wild for pretty cheap, which usually, which I usually do if I see a ball blazer cartridge, grab it, send it to Albert and say, hey, give me Super Circus Atari Age. On the Facebook, I heard from Richard Grounds, who says, I love it and suck at it at the same time. And he has a little wacky smiley face next to it. And uh, yeah, yeah, I hear you there, Richard. Yeah, you and me both. I love it and I suck at it. I was so excited when I got a five-digit score. <laughs> but yeah, Super Circus Atari Age, it's very twitchy. It's very... I don't know what else to say. It's just very, very difficult. <laughs> Even in easy mode, I'm terrible at it, but I still find myself playing like a dozen games at a time when I sit down to play it. S. Ramirez 2008 says, wow, this is an excellent game. It looks, sounds, and plays great and offers enough options that even I can get through several screen clears. After reading the manual, I selected Refill Row mode, and this option allowed me to progress far enough to become familiar with several of the eight, I believe, power-ups. The power-ups really make this game fun and add a level of strategy. I love the pokey-enhanced sound, and the box art is beautiful and gets carried over to the manual. Now for the little things. The Atari Age Presents intro screen is really cool. Joystick or paddle support is provided. There is a boss balloon, depending on your game variation. And a classic mode is offered, which gives you two games in one. I'm loving it. Thank you for your thoughts on that, S. Ramirez. 2008 and yeah i got my manual right here let me see there's one two three four five six uh, yep there are eight power-ups so yeah you counted correctly something that i really love though um in terms of the power-ups is that that p power-up the extra life power-up if you will that one is a little bit more generous than say it is an arkanoid i that's one thing that kills me about arkanoid i mean when I go to the arcade and I play Arkanoid, I will have either a really, really bad game or a really, really good game, and it's all just luck of the draw, really. <laughs> and uh, if I have a really good game, it means I'm get, I'm, I got a P power-up at some point. And have to totally agree with you on the box art. I mean, given who designed the box art, it is not a big shock that it's really amazingly beautiful. And going on, um, Save2600 says, Great game, no doubt. Waited a long time for it to be released, and I'm glad to have it now. Noticed right away how much more quiet the in-game pokey music is compared to the attract mode, but guess that's a good thing due to its repetitive nature. Love the game with all of its updates and enhancements, but really wish there were more circus-type tunes to take advantage of the pokey sound chip. And uh, yeah, I totally get what you're saying, like maybe have maybe a different song for 
in-game music and one for the intro screen or something, but hey, and I really absolutely do appreciate how the volume cuts back very noticeably on that music. Cause if I had to listen to it at full volume the whole time I'm playing, man, I would not be a happy little boy. I would not be. Trevor's contribution says off the bat, 2,600 fans rejoice the option to play with the original box balloon and stick figure clown graphics and simple launching platforms as well as seesaw is available. It is truly a very nice option and treat for those holding fond memories. Where this game truly shines though is the upgrades. Several power-ups that are available will clear balloons, adjust balloon movement speed, physics of the balloon, and clown interaction, extra life, and even a safety net. A plethora of, oh, I love that word. A plethora of options include two players alternating or simultaneously playing. In an alternating game, it can even be decided whether both players will share the same set or have a different set of balloons. It can be decided if balloon replenishment is on a row or an entire board cleared basis. The entire screen slash all balloons replacement holds an added bonus. As if the game is not exciting enough, keeping a player constantly on their toes, respecting the movement of the seesaw, clown placement, and power-up item from the sky, there is also a boss with its own little entourage. We'll keep the exact meaning under wraps, just watch for cameos. Also, quite excellently, Super Circus Atari Age supports a few different control schemes. Of course, there is the paddles and the joystick. Also, a driving controller can be utilized as well. The amount of thought and options evident is tremendous. A delightful background melody plays in the background driven by a pokey chip. The graphics, particularly the clowns, are very well done. Love their playful animation. The truly important part and passing with flying colors are the controls and physics. This was really tweaked exceptionally well. So well, in fact, that even those without the definitely preferred paddles or driving controllers still have a blast with a joystick. I found gameplay to be still quite fun and managed very well with the 7800 Proline joystick in hand. Make no mistake about it though, while the game is great with a joystick, a paddle controller makes it excellent. So whether it is a great or excellent gaming experience desired, Super Circus Atari Age is one to play and one to own on the system. Thank you, Trevor, for your very thoughtful feedback on that, as usual. What's there to disagree with, seriously? Well, I'm not looking to disagree with anybody or agree with anybody. Just want to kind of reflect on everybody's feedback, if you will. Uh, and um, everybody listening to this, yeah, please listen to Trevor. Use a paddle controller for this game. Trust me on that. Well, I, I've never tried the driving controller, at least at this point. Maybe I'll have to go back and try a driving controller as well. So that way I have um, more than just uh, Indy 500 to use that sucker with. In this part of Trevor's feedback, the clowns with and playful animation, yes, it's the detail is so great. They don't just shoot up in the air and like land back down on the ground or the seesaw, whatever, but they're actually like doing flips and stuff. So that attention to detail, that's really something else. That's, that's awesome. So thanks again, um, Trevor. Toilet Tunes says, part Circus Atari, part Arkanoid, and all quality. An easy-to-use options menu to keep everyone happy. This game has secrets to discover. Oh, yes, it does. Look at that. Short and sweet. Short and sweet. And really, do you have? is there much more to say about it? I mean, you summed it up very nicely. The the options menu. Yeah, that's right. Uh, just in case. I've, I don't remember if I mentioned this, but uh, if you have your paddle plugged in, what you do is use your um, select button to 
cycle through the options and hit the paddle button to actually change the options. And once you actually select paddle as the controller, you can use the paddle to uh, go up and down through the options. And uh, thanks again, Toy Latoons. On the forums at Atari.io, I heard from Rick R., who says, I've only seen online reviews of the game, but never played it. It looks awesome, lots of options. I love that they included a port of the original version. I'm going to have to give this game a try and possibly buy it PRGE if they have it. Um, yeah, you will have to give it. You can still give it, even uh, if you go to Atari Age in the uh, Super Circus Atari Age development thread, I think there are a couple of uh, different ROMs of it still up, so you can still play it that way if you can't get it at the uh, Portland Retro Gaming Expo. I, oh, I would love to go to that sometime. Uh, just wrong time of year for me, but that's it's that's like one of the biggest shows, I believe. But uh, I I don't know. I'm going to kind of doubt you're going to find it for sale, at least not from Atari Age at PRGE, simply because they require that you provide a pokey chip. So unless Albert has a couple of pokey chips that he's uh, reserving for that kind of thing, it's not likely going to be for sale at any kind of expo. But I could be wrong. I hope I am wrong, actually. But yeah, if you see it for sale, definitely get it. Definitely and Great Defender says, Hi, Sean. I had recently purchased Super Circus Atari from Atari Age, but had not found the time to try it out until now. But before I get into that, I wanted to point something out I am not sure how many people appreciate, which is the fact that the controller inputs and difficulty switches are on the front side of the 7800. So much more convenient. Anyhow, on to the game. A nice bonus with this purchase was the neat patch that was included with the, with the box cut. Wait, wait, what? What, what what patch? A neat patch. The neat patch that was included with the box copy. Wait a minute. Let me check mine. Let's see. I got mine right here, and I don't. I don't have such a thing. Yeah, and I got one of the first ones from uh, from the from the sale. I just got the the cartridge, the manual, and the cartridge holder. Oh, I'm gonna have to look into this. Great defender. Could you send a picture of that or post a picture somewhere? Hmm. Anyway, uh, back to uh, Gray Defender. He says, I love the carnival-style intro music, which plays on the main menu, as well as the smooth-scrolling game title and Atari Age words. The game only has a few options, but it makes the most of them. I love how it includes the classic mode, which is an homage to the Atari 2600 version. The controller allows you to uh, switch the controller from the standard joystick to the paddles. Playing with a joystick seems fine until you realize you cannot move horizontally quickly enough once the gameplay starts speeding up. Oh, yeah. Switching to paddles is the way this game, I believe, is intended to be played. Note, in order to play with the paddles, leave the joystick plugged into port 1 and simply plug the paddles into joystick port 2. I tried a couple of sets of paddles due to the infamous problem some of the old Atari paddles have, the jagginess issue. I know there are ways of fixing the issue, but the way I was finally able to address it was to plug in my brand new At Games replacement paddles, which I purchased several months back for about $15. Playing with good paddles makes all the difference. I immediately noticed an increase in my accuracy and scoring. I love the power-up options. The fact that there are two-player options is another huge plus. You can either play alternate play or play simultaneously with a friend. Should you decide to play the refill all option, I love that there is a boss balloon bonus round. Little creative things like this make all the difference. One thing I am curious about, which you may have already covered, is why the 2010 copyright date? 
Anyhow, I am enjoying playing this game. It will only get better as my skills improve with time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, thank you, Great Defender. Uh, and, of course, yeah, you know by now why the... If, you've, if you're listening, you know why the 2010 copyright date. And actually, uh, I think Crystal Quest also has a surprisingly old copyright date on it because it was... Uh, the development started so long ago on that. But uh, yeah, that, that's actually with a lot of homebrews. Like when Froggy finally gets released, that's going to have, I think, probably a 2008 date attached to it or something. It's been, it's been around for a while. But yeah, folks, listen to what Great Offender says. It's uh, very important that you play with a good paddle controller. And uh, yeah, let me tell you something about the paddle controllers. Before Midwest Gaming Classic back in April, I had a pair of really jittery paddle controllers that I painstakingly fixed, I degreased, I took them apart and everything, put them back together, they were working perfectly. In fact, it was specifically because of Super Circus Atari Age that I did that, because uh, Pie Factory Podcast at our table there, I was also, even though we're an arcade podcast, we had some homebrews out for demo purposes, and I loaded up a Mateos cart with uh, Super Circus Atari Age and Crystal Quest, and uh, so I figured better have some good paddles for people to try out. So when I played Super Circus Atari Age to prepare for this episode, I picked up the paddles that I painstakingly fixed and the top came right off. It broke off like the little plastic piece that holds it to the little D-shaped metal, metal and plastic. It broke right off. So I tried the other paddle. Same thing happened. Same thing. So now I'm looking to see if I can get replacement paddle tops. Oh, well, or maybe I should just invest in them and just see if uh, Best Electronics has a pair or something. And I do love, by the way, that uh, you plug the paddles in the port, too. So that way you can just leave them plugged in. Um, just to give you a perfect example, Christmas 1982 got an Atari 2600 under the tree. Within a week, controller port number one wore out where it just stopped working. It was probably because I was constantly swapping between paddles and joysticks. So having paddle games read the paddle controller in port two is so, so, so a good idea. I think it was actually done in this case because of the Atari 7800's limitations. It wasn't a creative choice, I don't think, but it's still a happy coincidence that uh, you could just leave it plugged in joystick port two. Don't have to worry about swapping stuff out. So, yeah, and uh, thank you so much, Great Defender. And thank you, everybody, for your feedback. Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode. So that's what we all have to say about Super Circus Atari Age, a game that I highly recommend, highly, highly, highly. Yeah, it's a little bit pricey, but you know what? You get so much for it, and it's very well worth it. Uh, if nothing else, I mean, you can still play the ROMs that are on Atari Age in the development thread. Uh, there's a reason Bob keeps them up, by the way. Now, I'm, I realize I'm actually starting to run out of homebrews, and I'm eventually going to have to talk about Pac-Man Collection, which I've literally been preparing since I started doing this podcast almost a year ago. But uh, I'm still nowhere near ready for it, so uh, I, I realize i got to hurry up and finish that before too long. But um, I'll tell you this much. Next episode, I'm going to be talking about a game by a developer who, in the past couple of years, has been turning out, like, mini games, so to speak, left and right. So I'm going to talk about one of them, and it's going to be called Fat Axel. 
and the developer's Clark Otto, who's known better on Atari Age as Franco Dragon. Oh, and actually, I'm not just going to talk about Fat Axel, but I'm also going to talk about Sick Pickles. Sick Pickles. They're very similar games, and believe it or not, there's going to be kind of a Halloween theme. I figured I should do that since this is the last episode before Halloween. And then after that, I do believe I should talk about Moon Cresta. So that'll be next. That'll be episode 23, if I counted correctly. Yeah. And then episode 24 will be Crystal Quest featuring Bentley Bear. Also, I can tell you this much. December 16th will be the last episode before Christmas. So naturally, I have to do the predictable thing and do a Christmas theme. So what better homebrew to talk about? before Christmas than Santa Simon. I will warn you right now, Santa Simon is probably going to be impossible to get anywhere in cartridge form. It was released in 2007 in a very limited edition, and uh, hopefully there will be a reissue of it sometime. But uh, there is a ROM to be found in case you want to play it. So uh, go ahead and uh, look for that and give it a shot and tell me what you think. And I, I, I want to do what Ferg does, because I, I really like what he does. I want to share a few Christmas memories. And uh, But Sean, fall just started. I know, I know. But hey, it's inevitable, isn't it? But anyway, I offer a sincere thank you to the following people who have been very generously financially supporting this podcast. Kyle Etter, Richard Valdez, Richard Grounds, Jimmy G, Ed Ladden Controllers, and Gray Defender. And actually, recently, these folks have been helping hurricane victims, and that's going to happen again. This month's Patreon payout will also be going to hurricane victims, this time victims of Hurricane Maria over in Puerto Rico. Things are really bad out there, and hopefully this will help things, even if just a little bit. Uh, The Patreon money will be going to International Medical Corps, and there will be a link to their website in the show notes. But uh, thank you all for your support because it's been supporting not just this podcast, but also people who are in a lot more need than I've ever been. So in the meantime, you can reach out to me in various methods. One is through email, which is homebrew78 at fab4it.com. And uh, fab4it is spelled F-A-B, then the number four, and then it.com. The show notes page is at homebrew78.fab4it.com on the web. Twitter handle is homebrew78. YouTube channel is homebrew7800. And as I always say, please give these hardworking homebrew developers the support they deserve. And even more priority right now, if you can, please give the people who are really hurting in hurricane-ravaged areas the support that they need. Let's all be good to each other and ourselves, and uh, thank you again for letting me talk to you. Looking forward to doing it again very soon. Teeter-totter love goes up, my teeter-totter love goes down. When I went down, my baby went up, then she came down, and I went flying off. <laughs>